Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Friday, February 23rd, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I am speaking today with political correspondent Sam Sokol. Hello, Sam. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. It is day 140 of the war. A decision was made overnight to send an Israeli delegation to Paris for hostage negotiations after the war cabinet received reliable evidence that the medications that had been negotiated a few weeks ago had actually reached hostages in Gaza. Uh, The U.S. defense chief said to Defense Minister Gallant not to operate in Rafah without a plan that will protect the Gazan civilians. And also last night, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, presented the the post-war plan to the cabinet with an aim for local officials to govern Gaza. We will talk today about the failure of the impeachment vote against uh, Knesset member Ofer Kassif and possible legislation that would draft Taridim to the IDF. We'll get into all of that after a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, so Sam, you were in the Knesset on the day that uh, MKO for Kassif, who publicly, this is the background of this impeachment case, he publicly supported South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice as it was accusing Israel of genocide. The impeachment vote against this left-wing Hadash Ta'al lawmaker failed, but I want to hear about the vote. I want to hear more about Kassif and what was what was going on on that day in the Knesset. What were you seeing and hearing? So it was uh, a very, very contentious debate leading up to the impeachment vote. Uh, they needed to get 90 out of 120 members of Knesset to vote in favor in order to expel Kassif from the body. And it felt like every single one of those members wanted to get their three minutes to speak. And there was, the anger at Kassif was palpable. Now, a little bit of background about Ofer Kassif. He's the only Jewish lawmaker in the otherwise Arab Hadashtal uh, uh, party. He is on the far left of Israeli politics, very, very far outside of the Zionist spectrum defined by the... Uh, Zionist parties, including on the left. Uh, He's called government ministers in the past neo-Nazis. He's said that killing Israeli soldiers is not terrorism. And he's tried to push for changes to Israel's national anthem, which talks about uh, a very Jewish experience. Now, 
because Eve had come out publicly in favor of South Africa's claims that Israel was committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. He signed a petition essentially endorsing South Africa's petition to the International uh, Court of Justice. And that really ruffled a lot of feathers on the political right. Now, there's a 2016 law which states that a member of Knesset who provided uh, support for the armed struggle against Israel can be impeached. And it's never actually been implemented. There was uh, a large, uh, large backlash to his comments on the political right, and they decided to invoke this 2016 law, which allows for the impeachment of an MK who uh, supports the armed struggle of an outside body against the state of Israel. Now, this has never been implemented before, and it was a very interesting process. We had 85 MKs who signed a petition uh, requesting the impeachment process to be started, which uh, led to two very, very contentious hearings in the Knesset House Committee, after which the committee voted almost unanimously to refer to the issue to the, uh, to the Knesset plenum, where you needed 90 out of 120 MKs to support his expulsion. The problem was that as much as politicians across the political spectrum, from uh, the left to the hard right, uh, all the Zionist parties essentially deplored what he's been saying and have condemned his, his rhetoric and his positions. But the Knesset legal advisor and the Justice Ministry's representatives during the hearing both said that Kassif's statements, while seen by many as deplorable, were not in any way criminal. And Kassif and his political allies, in turn, including some people who aren't, some people on the Israeli left who aren't his allies, but spoke out against the, the impeachment, essentially said, calling for peace is not, and calling for the sides to put down their arms is not uh, assisting Hamas. On the other hand, you had right-wing lawmakers who were saying, when Israel's been attacked with the worst attacks since the Holocaust, and Israel is fighting to rid itself of a genocidal enemy, uh, the fact is that by trying to get an outside body or expressing support for an outside body, because he wasn't actually involved in the South African case directly in any way, but expressing support for, for that in a way which could assist those efforts or be, uh, is essentially trying to tie Israel's hands, and that is assisting Hamas. Uh, so the, the hurdle wasn't to convince lawmakers that what Kassif said was out of bounds, because that's the consensus. The consensus is that what he said was out of bounds. But it was to convince lawmakers that what he said met a legal threshold, that it was no longer freedom of speech, and it was actually actionable. And that's something that the, uh, the people who were behind this, uh, MK Oded Four from Yisrael Beitenu, initiated this, and this was mostly a Yisrael Beitenu, uh, you know, joint. Uh, essentially, uh, you know, they were trying to argue this was actionable, but they really didn't manage. And the vote fell five short of the 90 required in order to, uh, to pass in the Knesset. And this really sparked some intense anger. The fact that it did not pass sparked the anger. The fact that it did not pass. When, when the vote came down, uh, Kassif's, uh, you know, party members, fellow party members hugged him and the, they were celebrating. And uh, you had people from Likud and from Otsma Yudit 
screaming traitors, Nazis, uh, terror supporters. Uh, and you ended up with uh, far-right and Arab MKs in each other's faces uh, in a little scrum on the Knesset floor that really for a second there, I thought they were going to come to blows. Uh, MK Tzvi Sukot from... Uh, uh, religious Zionism was screaming in Kasif's face uh, while Kasif sort of stood there with a bit of a smirk on his face. Uh, really, you know, I think what the one thing they succeeded in doing was taking an otherwise marginal political figure and really giving him a huge boost to his brand. So that's what I wanted to ask you, Sam. In other words, so why, in a sense, do you think a few weeks back, he even sort of voiced his support for the genocide case? Was he just trying to boost his brand? Does he really, does he believe it? Where is he in terms of the spectrum of his party? I don't know because he personally. So take what I say with a grain of salt. But my impression, having met him a few times and inter- having interviewed him uh, for an article about about this, is that say what you like one way or the other about what he believes, but he does believe it. He seems sincere in his convictions because if it was just what was good for him politically, it would be a lot easier to uh, to be within the political mainstream. He's putting himself out there outside of the consensus. Uh, now, the question to me is that's more interesting is not why Kasif said what he said, but why the Knesset decided to take action against him. And there's a couple things that I've heard. One lawmaker essentially told who, one lawmaker who actually objected to bringing the case, but voted in favor of it nonetheless, said that he believed that this could serve as a deterrent to uh, people on the fringes of Israeli politics. I don't know if that's true or not, but this is the thinking among some of the supporters. Someone else uh mentioned to me, and I, I think this makes a lot of sense, lawmakers were, to a certain degree, afraid of saying no. When Forer was coming around with his petition saying, we're going to kick out Kasif, there was a certain reluctance uh, to not sign because they wouldn't want to be called out as being supporters of what Kasif was saying. Uh, now, if you ask Kasif supporters themselves, they had a different take, which was the idea that if Kasif's impeachment was appealed to the Supreme Court, which he has the right to do, it would be over, most likely overturned. And this would give people on the right the, uh, the chance to uh, use this as a stick to beat the court, to return to the days of the judicial overhaul. Now, the, the one issue with that claim, that could be why some people in the could supported it, but I don't think that explains why this was initiated, because uh, this was the initiative of Yisrael Beitenu, and Yisrael Beitenu really wasn't uh, behind in the judicial overhaul in any way. They're, not, they're a right-wing party, but they're an opposition party who's uh, basically been against anything that Netanyahu has done. So, you know, it still remains a little bit unclear. But I think, I think in the end, you know, it just comes down to the fact that people are angry, emotions are running high, and having a member of the Knesset say anything along those lines uh, that Israel's committing genocide in Gaza, it angers people. I don't think this was based on, you know, legal, recent legal analysis. It was based on anger that Jews, after the worst attacks in the Holocaust, 
can be accused themselves of carrying out genocide. Yeah, I hear that. Okay, so let's take a quick break. When we're back, we'll talk about another issue that's been playing out in the Knesset this week, the issue of the Haredi draft coming up again. Stay with us. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Sam, issue of the Haredi draft up again, but even sort of in a in a much more tense moment, of course, because we had 360,000 reservists who were called up on October 7th. Uh, many of them are on a break now, uh, but you also have recruits whose period of service has been lengthened. And we also have the army going around to Mechinot, to pre-army preparatory programs, and saying to kids who are in their second year or at the end of their first year, okay, you were going to go in in August, how about coming in in March? And so therefore that makes everyone look at the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community, and say all of those who are not necessarily learning all day long or built for that kind of lifestyle, who's out there who is recruitable? And that brings us to Knesset legislation. So tell us what you were hearing and seeing in the Knesset this week on this issue. So on Monday, opposition leader Yair Lapid advanced legislation which calls for all members of Israeli society to be drafted uh, equally into the IDF, uh, equal conscription for everyone. And his legislation stipulates that anyone who does not serve in the army is going to be ineligible for certain government benefits. You know, he spoke at a press conference several days earlier announcing this legislation, and he said, listen, we're not going to send tanks into the ultra-Orthodox city of B'nai Brak, but there are economic incentives that can get people to serve. Now, look, this has been a long-simmering issue in Israeli society. The way it works, and I'm speaking right now as a former uh, serviceman from the ultra-Orthodox uh, Nachal Haredi Battalion, the, the way that this works is that uh, ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students are granted yearly deferments until they reach the age where they are exempted totally from military service in their late 20s. And this generates a lot a lot of anger in Israeli society that the burden of military service is not shared equally. You have young men and women from the secular and national religious uh, sectors who are going to the army, spending years of their life, uh, risking their lives, and their counterparts in the ultra-Orthodox community are sitting in their study halls, studying Talmud, and not uh, partaking in that risk and in that duty. Now, this has long been a political third rail, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu is completely dependent on ultra-Orthodox support to maintain his coalitions, and he has been unwilling to take action that would undermine that support. And the ultra-Orthodox have been able to play sort of a kingmaker role in the Knesset because of the way our uh, parliamentary system works, even though that they represent, you know, a small minority of the overall population. Now, following the outbreak of war on October 7th, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been called up to military service. And this has placed a very, very harsh burden on their families. Uh, People have been ruined economically. You have uh, wives who are raising kids without their husbands, husbands raising kids without their wives. Uh, It's been a very difficult situation for many people. And the IDF has actually begun to, as you said, recruit uh, people from pre-military academies. Uh, But this is coming at the same time that the ultra-Orthodox are remaining outside of you know, outside of the system. Uh, tens of thousands of them were eligible, uh, were of the age to be eligible this year for military service and were exempted. Uh, and this is generating anger. It generated even more anger when the government was required in the Knesset plenum to explain why it was drafting national religious yeshiva students uh, significantly ahead of their uh, induction dates. And the person who made the argument that yeshiva students must be drafted for national security reasons was an ultra-Orthodox minister, prompting allegations and accusations of gross hypocrisy. Uh, now, this really came to a head recently when the IDF said, we really have manpower shortages. We need people bad. And they turned to the government, and the government and the IDF came out with draft legislation Uh, essentially saying we're going to extend the terms of everyone in regular and reserve service. We're going to increase the number of years people have to serve in the reserves, the number of days per year that reservists have to serve. But they didn't address the issue of the Haredim, of the ultra-Orthodox, at all. Uh, And this is what prompted uh, Lapid to, to table his bill and it's even prompted people people within the coalition to begin insisting on the necessity to start drafting the ultra-Orthodox, ultra-orthodox right away. Now, interestingly enough, uh, this is something that our colleague Jeremy Sharon was reporting on yesterday. Uh, the Attorney General yesterday turned to the High Court of Justice to say that unless a law regulating ultra-Orthodox enlistment is passed by March 31st, legally the government will be required, starting in the beginning of April, to draft every eligible member of the ultra-Orthodox community. Uh, she asked for a deferral, a further deferral to allow the government to come up with a solution. But as things stand now, we could see, uh, potentially see a massive call-up. And if that does happen, watch for uh, ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods in cities like Jerusalem and Beit Shemesh to uh, both metaphorically and sometimes literally go up in flames. Yeah. And just to circle back to the Lapid legislation, where does that stand? In other words, what are we going to be seeing happening with that? Just give us a sentence about that. So long story short, the this was just tabled. So it needs to go through a preliminary vote in the uh, Knesset plenum, go back to committee, and then pass a series of votes in the plenum. This is the beginning of an extended legislative process. It's not something they're going to be voting on over the next day or two. Right. Okay. So we'll see. Obviously, we'll be following up on all of that as it plays out. 
Sam, thank you so much for being here on The Daily Briefing and really diving into those two subjects that we don't always get a chance to, but it's been good to have that opportunity today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. We will be back again tomorrow night after Shabbat. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. As always, if you have comments, drop us a line, podcast at timesofisrael.com. And always feel free to recommend us to listeners wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care, be well. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.